Welcome to the Cell Therapy Podcast by Kite Gillian. I'm your host, Mike Bonka. In just a decade, CRISPR has become one of the most celebrated tools in modern biology. It took just eight years from CRISPR's discovery as a gene editing tool till Emmanuel Chapentier and Jennifer Doudner received a Nobel Prize for their work characterizing its components and how to use them as a biological Swiss Army knife. CRISPR has quickly changed how researchers study everyday biology, but now it also seems poised to change the way we treat a number of diseases. And there's tremendous excitement about how CRISPR can be used in combination with cellular therapies. In this episode, I had the great pleasure of talking to Professor Rasmus Bach as he helps us understand the power and potential of CRISPR. Welcome, Rasmus. Thank you, Mike. Nice uh, to be here. Thanks for having me. So, so just as a short introduction, uh, Rasmus is an associate professor at Aarhus University, um, where he uh, does work on, on CRISPR and a number of different uh, cellular therapies. Um, he's a founder of a biotech startup called Unicum that also works on in the cellular therapy space. Um, uh, just a few months ago, you were awarded uh, the Skull Medal, which is this very prestigious uh, award at Aarhus University. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And I should also say that we do actually collaborate a bit on a, on a car project. Yeah. Um, so Rasmus, we're very happy to have you join us today. Thank you for the invitation. So first off, I was hoping you could give us some, some background and perhaps um, some of the history of CRISPR. What is it and why did it take the science world by storm, do you think? Yeah, so, um, so for, I guess to most people, CRISPR has been around for around 10 years because that's when it was sort of democratized. People started using it as a gene editing tool, but, but it's been around for, for a few more decades, actually, uh, slowly being discovered as this bacterial immune system. But back then, no one really realized the big potential it had in, in, in medicine. So that happened around 10 years ago when they sort of leaned on prior research from, from sink finger nucleases and tail nucleases, so designer nucleases that you can program to, to cut anywhere in the genome. And, and it turned out that the CRISPR system was in fact also, but it consisted of a nuclease that, that you can program quite easily to go into the genome, find a, sp a specific spot and, and make a cut there. And the reason why it was so revolutionary is that that programming that the researchers do to, to a protein to make it recognize a specific DNA sequence and cut there was so much easier than the prior tools that we had. These tools were, um, the binding of a specific DNA sequence was, was uh, facilitated by protein DNA interaction. So you had to reprogram a protein to bind a DNA sequence. With the CRISPR system, it's, it's, it's not a protein interaction, it's, it's an RNA that binds to the DNA. And we know that we can program RNA to bind DNA sequences very easily just by, by changing the, the RNA basis. So, so it's based on uh, base complementarity. So that's definitely one of the, the biggest reasons why, why CRISPR was so revolutionary that everyone could start doing gene editing in a very fast and very simple way. You mentioned a number of different sort of elements of, of the CRISPR system. I think it would be good just to sort of briefly go over sort of the, what they are. And um, so, so, so the nuclease, that's what's, that's, that's Cas9 or that's sort of the business end of the... Yeah, so Cas9 is, is the scissors and, uh, and the DNA scissors, and, and, and that can cut both DNA strands. There are two active sites in this enzyme that cut each of their DNA strands. And, um, and that's, that's one part of the system. The other part is this guide RNA that is complexed into the Cas9 enzyme so that 
they form together an RNP complex, a ribonuclear protein. And the most, the first part of this guide RNA sequence is what we as researchers can change because th th these 20 uh, five prime basis of this guide RNA strand is what determines the selectivity towards a given DNA sequence. So we can just simply ch exchange these uh, first 20 bases, and then we can direct Cas9 to uh, to bind a specific DNA sequence. Okay, so CRISPR is now being used in in a, in a number of different settings, and 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 in different ways, I guess. Uh, not just cutting anymore, but a number of other cool things are are happening. And I was I was hoping we could run through, and you could tell us a bit about the different ways that CRISPR is being utilized now. Yeah, absolutely. So there are so many applications for the CRISPR system now. And when it came out a decade ago. And that's what I like to refer to as conventional gene editing is its ability to just cut both strands of the DNA. And we can we can use that to hijack the DNA repair machinery inside cells so, so that when we when we've uh, introduced this cut into the genome, this cut will be repaired by uh, DNA repair pathways. And these two ends will be will be stuck together again. And during that process, small insertion or deletions in the DNA can occur. So we can use that to um, to facilitate gene knockouts in the cells. There's also a different pathway among these repair pathways that we can hijack, which is some people refer to it as homologous recombination. Some people call it homology directed repair. But here we we have to supply the cells with a repair template, and and during this repair of the DNA break, this repair template can be can be used, and whatever is in that repair template, this repair template has some homologous sequence to to the side of the break. And we can add new sequences into this repair template that will be copy-pasted into the break. So this is a way for us to do precise gene editing where we can determine the outcome. This can be a single nucleotide substitution, or it can be insertion of several thousands of, of nucleotides. So that's sort of what I refer to as the conventional gene editing of, of the CRISPR system. But then we have all these other things that you can do with them. You can you can start labeling chromosomes with the CRISPR system. You have more fancy and newer ways of, of, of doing gene editing that, that don't cut both of the DNA strands, base editing, prime editing, touch upon also ways to manipulate transcriptional status of cells. And you can also do epigenome editing where you, for example, methylate promoters or deacetylate uh, histones and stuff like this. So you can do so many things with, with this system. Yeah. And I, and I think um, it seems once people figured out that you could, and, I, and I, I, I've read that you've, you've called sort of the, the guide uh, Cas9 complex, you call it sort of a, a cellular GPS. But once the researchers sort of figured out how to to use that, people just became very, very creative, it seemed to me. And then you started coupling all, instead of just using it in its sort of what I, maybe it's its natural sort of propensity to, to cut, you then, you generated all these other um, functions and coupled that to Cas9, I think. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in your paper that we'll discuss later, but um, wait, can you maybe just touch a bit on like where do you think that's moving? Is are people still being very creative in this field? Or yeah, definitely. So 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 you're completely right in that this this is a this is a system that can be used for so many things, basically because of the the, the biochemical profiling that was made on the Cas9 protein. So the two active sites of the nuclease were determined and that meant that you could also mutate these so you could inactivate the DNA cutting ability of, of Cas9. And that meant that you had this um, GPS system. So, so you, could, you could take a protein and carry it 
into specific sites in the genome, not, not necessarily for cutting purposes, but for any other purpose. And that's what has mainly facilitated a lot of these other applications. And as I just described, there are so many different ways there that you can manipulate with, with the genome, both epigenetically, transcriptionally. And then people have also taken it out of the cell and, and, and started using it for diagnostics. Uh, we have different companies that have been launched to, to use the, the CAS9 system or different actually different CRISPR systems that are able to also bind sequences, for example, of viruses or rare genetic variants and diagnose diseases in that way. Okay, that's very clever. So to to say you wanted to find some novel virus and then you could you could easily reprogram the guide and then Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. So just to get a few sort of basic things in place, like can you find anything in the genome with Cas9 and, and sort of how fast is it? Yeah, well so when you program this guide RNA, there's there's one requirement which is this PAM sequence. So you cannot just design your guide RNA to be complementary to any region in the DNA. There has to be this PAM sequence next to the site that you target. And, and this PAM sequence differs from CRISPR system to CRISPR system. So, so the CRISPR systems we conventionally use are from bacteria. And each of these Cas enzymes can have different preferences for these PAM sequences. The Cas9 enzyme that we use most frequently is from Streptococcus pyogenes. And the PAM sequence for this enzyme uh, is NGG. So any nucleotide followed by two Gs. So we have to, to find that um in the in the genome which is not so difficult i think i believe we have around 280 million gg sites in the in, in the genome but of course sometimes it, it can be difficult if you if you want to target a very specific site but then there is the possibility to go to a different crispr system another cas enzyme that has a different preference for a pam sequence and then there has been a wealth of engineering also on cas enzymes to change this PAM preference and also make PAM-less variants that don't really have a, a high requirement. So that has given us a lot of flexibility to actually program the, 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 the Cas9 to, to go almost anywhere in the, in the genome. So we've come up quite a far away in the past five years, I would say, uh, to develop these enzymes and also enzymes that are more specific uh, than, the, uh, than the original enzyme. And so um, how does one deliver uh, CRISPR? I, I remember when I did this the first time, it was a long time ago, we, um, we, we had to sort of generate a lentivirus and you, you constantly expressed Cas9. That's not how people do it anymore. I... No, it really depends on the purpose and also the application if you're doing gene editing or if you're trying to manipulate transcriptional state of a gene. So what are you looking to get? So, so the, for most therapeutic applications, people would deliver these components as um, recombinant proteins. So we can take this protein, we can express it in E. coli, we can purify it, and in a test tube, we can mix it with a guide RNA. And this will form these RNP complexes that are ready to act immediately on the DNA whenever they go into cells and are shuttled into the nucleus. So that's the most, I, I believe, the most frequently used way uh, of doing gene editing. But you can also deliver this by other means, for example, plasmid delivery, uh, delivery by viral vectors, such as lentiviral vectors. Uh, of course, that will come with that effect that you, you integrate the components into the genome and you will have permanent expression of these. And that's, that might not be desirable for therapeutic applications to have a pair of DNA scissors constantly present in a cell. So that's why people would like to use these transient methods uh, where you get this short burst of activity 
of DNA cutting activity. And whenever you've made your uh, edit to the genome, that will be stably inherited into daughter cells. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And one thing, because I know that you mentioned it in the paper that we're going to discuss, but I just want to clarify it up front. Um, you talk about something called guide RNAs, and then you talk about these chemically modified guide RNAs. Can you, I think it's something, it's, uh, something you focused quite a lot on research. Yeah, this is something we developed during my postdoc. This was published, yeah, well, almost 10 years ago. I think it was in 2015. So what we found out in the early days of the CRISPR system was that it worked great. It was easy to use, but but most people had, had, had used this uh, expressed from a plasmid, transfected into uh, easily engineered cancer cell lines. And that worked great, but when people moved into therapeutically relevant cells, such as T cells and hepatopoietic stem cells, plasmid delivery, does, it's not a choice that you have really because it's so toxic to these kind of cells. So initially when we, uh, if you can make guide RNAs based on in vitro transcription, but the problem there is that when these go into to, to cells, they're very unstable. So we teamed up in an industry collaboration with Agilent Technologies, and they could synthesize these guide RNAs using chem normal chemical synthesis. And at that point, that was quite difficult for companies to do. DNA synthesis was easy, but RNA is, is just a different beast. So, so, so they had the, the capability at that point to synthesize it. And during the synthesis process, they could put in different kinds of nucleotides, modified nucleotides into the synthesis reaction. So we thought that, well, what, what if we uh, engineer these guide RNAs to become more stable inside the cells? So we could have these protective ends by using modified, chemically modified nucleotides that could not, for example, be easily digested by exonucleases inside the cells. And that worked tremendously well. And, and in fact, they're still being used. So what we did there was that we took the three outer uh, nucleotides in both ends and we modified those to confer this protection to the guide RNAs. And this modification is still used today also in, in the newly approved CRISPR therapy. So it's very exciting to be part of that. And we're still using these molecules to this date. Yeah, definitely. It, it sounds very similar to what was necessary to get the mRNA vaccines to work, actually. It's, the, the modifications are actually a little bit different. We also use, when we, when we make in vitro transcribed messenger RNA in our lab, we use those same modifications as are used in the, uh, in the mRNA vaccines. But the ones that we use for the chemically modified guide RNAs actually differ a little bit. These are more, I guess, more protective to make the RNA more stable inside the cells. And it, has, it also has something to do with the immunogenicity of these molecules, but not as much. I think we're now ready to sort of to do a deep dive into one of your articles. This one is called uh, Targeted uh, Regulation of Transcription in Primary Cells Using CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I, and it's by Dr. Uh, Trine Jensen et al. It was published in, in Genome Research in 2021. And as always, we'll, we'll link to all the articles that we discuss in the podcast in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go have a look and read it afterwards, uh, that should be quite easy. But can you, can you, I think we just need to start off like CRISPR-A and I, what is that? Yeah, so actually CRISPR-A and I are, uh, are these transcriptional regulators that are, that's based on the CRISPR system. They were actually developed very soon after the, the conventional gene editing system based on CRISPR. And what they do is that they take advantage of this ability to inactivate the Cas9 enzyme so that it doesn't cut DNA anymore, but you can still program it to target a, a specific sequence in the genome. And then what people have done here is to fuse transcriptional regulators to 
the Cas9 enzyme. We call this a dead Cas9 enzyme or a deactivated Cas9. So this de-Cas9 enzyme is fused to different kinds of transcriptional regulators that can be transcriptional repressors or transcriptional um, or transcription factors, transcriptional activators. And then we can program this uh, by, by repro reprogramming the guide RNA to go into the promoter region of a gene, basically very close to the transcriptional start site of a gene. So if we sort of drag transcriptional repressors or activators down to this region, we can modulate the transcriptional output of a specific gene. And the reason for our paper, the initial thoughts there, were exactly those that I outlined before based on the toxicity of plasmid delivery. So people have done a lot of CRISPR activation, CRISPR-A and CRISPR interference, CRISPR-I in cancer cell lines, either using plasmid delivery or lensiviral delivery. So we thought, well, why is no one taking this system and used it in primary cells, blood cells, for example? And we had experience using mRNA delivery of Cas9 or, or recombinant protein delivery. So we thought, well, well, let's try some of these methods with the CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I system. And we also had the chemically modified guide RNAs that work very efficiently in primary cell types. So initially, we just made in vitro transcribed mRNA that encoded these repressors, DCAS9 repressor proteins. And we co-delivered those um, with, with these chemically modified guide RNAs to target transcriptional start site regions of different surface expressed genes so that we could pick it up by flow cytometry, the, the induction of a gene, for example. And then we compared it to the conventional delivery way, which was a plasmid delivery. And the plasmid delivery worked pretty nicely. The problem with plasmid delivery is that your transfection efficiencies can vary widely in a cell population. You'll have some cells that are very highly transfected. You'll have some that are poorly transfected, and you'll have a proportion of cells that don't get, get transfected at all. So this was also evident when we then did the readout on the CRISPR, for example, CRISPR-A in these cells that we saw a very heterogeneous upregulation of our target gene, but it did work. When we then put our RNA system into the cells trying to upregulate a specific gene, we saw something uh, entirely different. We saw that we had 99% transfection efficiencies. We had a very homogeneous population of, of cells that had a specific upregulation of this surface uh, marker that we, um, that we targeted. It was very efficient, and we got this homogeneous and high induction of the target gene. And this reflects back on the fact that mRNA delivery is so much better, and it's so much um, more better tolerated than plasmid DNA delivery. Do you think that's because, as you say, there's some intrinsic systems that sort of start degrading DNA once it gets inside the cell? Or I think that's one part of the explanation. Another is just the, um, the innate immune DNA sensors that are in play and also in, in primary cells. We know that a lot of cancer uh, cell lines have mutated these pathways, so they don't care too much about foreign DNA. But primary cells care a lot. They see this as invading organisms, right? And, and they just want to get rid of these. So we find and it to be very toxic to deliver DNA to these cells. Well, and you, um, as you say, you, you test uh, 14 different genes. Uh, they're all surface genes, so you can you can uh, you can sort of uh, you can quickly see uh, their expression, and you get this really nice upregulation, almost 100 uh, percent of almost all of them. And then there's like one gene that just doesn't want to get turned on. What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, we're still studying this effect and it, it still hurt my feelings that, <laughs> that, that, that a few of these genes don't want to get upregulated. What we did just to confirm that everything 
should work was to test these guide RNAs. Did they actually bind the DNA uh, or did they facilitate binding of the Cas complex? So we did conventional gene editing using these guide RNAs and we could see that they very efficiently were able to go down to the genome, make cuts and introduce insertion and deletions at this site in the genome. So they were definitely functional. In fact, all of them were functional, but we just couldn't get this upregulation. We also tried different cell lines and nothing worked. So we're still trying to figure out what's going on here. And one current hypothesis is that in these cells that we test, some of these genes are just so heavily repressed by the epigenetic machinery that we cannot overcome this, no matter how many of these transcription factors we put down to these uh, different loci. So we're currently testing that hypothesis. So hopefully we can we can contribute a little bit more on that. And you touched a bit on this uh, before, but you use this dead Cas9 that doesn't cut, but sort of brings in the, the transcriptional machinery that you want to use. And you use something called uh, VPR. Can you, can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and why you chose that? Yeah, so it's sort of a, a giant transcriptional activator that consists of three modules and we've picked those. We haven't done that. That has been engineered previously. But it, it's three parts that consist of three transcription factors, basically one from uh, herpes simplex virus and one from Epstein-Barr virus, and then another unit from the NF-kappa-beta transcription factor. So we put all these transcriptional activators together in, in, in one single complex, and that has been shown in, in, in previous work from George Church's lab this is a very efficient uh, transcriptional activation complex if you compare it to just the single components alone. So, so, And there are different systems out there, quite a few actually. This is one of the, 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 the more efficient ones, but of course it also the choice of these depends on what you're doing and which cell types and the delivery modality as well. Okay, so then you, you start using this system to edit primary human hemopoietic stem cells, HSPCs for short, <laughs> and you show that you can uh, upregulate genes in those cells as well. And then you do this really important experiment, I think, where you actually take the edited HSPCs and put them into immunodeficient mice and see that they actually develop into all the different sort of components of the hemopoietic system, which I think is it's really nice. I guess the reason you did that is to show that you haven't sort of intrinsically like damaged the cells in some way, right? Yeah. And it's just a minor correction because we we didn't edit the cells. I wouldn't call this gene editing, but but rather just transcriptional engineering. So and and that's that brings me to a point also with this system is that this is a transient effect. We're not delivering any DNA components that are permanently integrated into the genome. These are transiently acting uh, machinery components that will briefly upregulate or downregulate a gene, and then it goes back to, to baseline. So you're completely right that we, we wanted to check that when we did this to, for example, hematopoietic stem cells, with this perturb their natural function acting as stem cells, that they still have stem cell potential. So we transplanted them into radiated immunodeficient mice, and then we we observed 16 weeks after engraftment that or injection that they had engrafted uh, these mice in the bone marrow, and they were able to repopulate the, the blood system with with human cells. So so uh, that was very nice to see, and it's it's a test that we always do, whatever kind of it's gene editing or transcriptional manipulation, we'd like to see that that we don't disturb the stem cell function of, of these cells. Thanks for correcting me. <laughs> and then you do this really cool experiment where you um, you activate a transcription factor called GATAV1. And so that sort of pushes the stem cells into a certain lineage 
if I understand it correctly. And so the idea is that, and you show that that is actually doable. You, you get uh, more erythroid, I think, uh, cells out in the other end. But I guess the idea here is that you can you can push for specific cellular states. I, I think that is really interesting. And I'm to my mind, I think that opens up to a number of possibilities clinically. Where do you think this could be used, for example? Well, first off, I just want to acknowledge the collaboration partner that actually did this line of work on, on, the, on GATA1. Andreas Reinisch uh, from uh, University Hospital of Graz in Austria, great hematologist. And you're right, we wanted to showcase a, a use of this system. How could we actually uh, use this to do something that, that could have a, an application at some point? And we, we upregulated GATA1, which is a known transcription factor that is used to direct a specific lineage commitment of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells once they start to differentiate. And it's a very powerful transcription factor. So this alone was able to to direct the cells towards a certain lineage of hematopoietic cells. And you're completely right that this opens up so many possibilities, at least in my mind. And that's also part of the reason why we developed this system. And, and we are actually continuing this line of work, not only developing the technology, but also trying to apply this to, to, to different applications. And one of them is actually trying to engineer hematopoietic stem cells. You can think of a lot of different applications here, both to direct the cells to certain lineages. You could think about doing ex vivo generation of a certain cell type that could be for answering certain biological questions, could also be for therapeutic applications. If you'd like to, and there are a bunch of companies around this trying to make in vitro cells starting from hematopoietic stem cells or even iPSCs. One of the things that we have dived into now is actually trying to see if we can go the other way. So I think a lot of people are aware of the iPSCs where you can take fibroblasts or PBMCs and you can you can bring them back to a stem cell-like state, the induced pluripotent stem cell state. So what we're trying to do now is to use this system to see if we can sort of de-differentiate blood cells back into the hematopoietic stem cell state. We have some, some early promising data on this. Uh, we still have to do a lot more work, uh, but I think that that could be one of the really cool uh, applications for this system. And then you can think about a bunch of others in different tissue engineering applications. You could think about uh, immunotherapy, cell-based immunotherapies, where you can transiently reprogram cells to have better properties. You can, for example, prevent exhaustion, or uh, you can you can upregulate different homing molecules just transiently. So after infusion, they will go to the correct uh, place. Or There's so many things, I think. But of course, it, it requires that you have the biological background knowledge to know what to upregulate or downregulate, of course. So once we know more about all these things, stem cell biology and, and, and cellular immunotherapies, I think that will give us a lot of insight into what could be potentially um, regulated in these cells. Thanks for sharing that, Erasmus. And I think it's really interesting to hear about how, you, how, how you're thinking about using this technology. Um, so, so I'd like I'd like to turn now to to the best cell there is in the body, of course, the T cell. And uh, I should say we're jumping over a bunch of uh, studies that you do in the in this article as well. But you basically you repeat a lot of these experiments that you tried initially with the HSPCs in the, um, in T cells now. And just like in HSPCs, you show that you can turn genes on and off use, using your CRISPR I and A systems here. And then you do this really, really cool experiment. Well, you do a lot of cool experiments, but but I think this one really uh, blew my mind. So you, you within a single electroporation, like the, the way you get the system into cells, you show that you can both downregulate one gene 
and upregulate another. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's great because now instead of doing sort of multiple different sort of manipulations of the cells, uh, you can actually sort of, you can, you can turn one thing up and another thing down. So can you tell us how you did this? Yes, absolutely. So we call this a orthogonal gene regulation, bringing one gene up and another gene down. And to do that, we needed to bring in another CRISPR system. Because the problem here is that if we have two genes that we want to upregulate, you can design guide RNAs to bind these two different genes and you can bring them into cells at the same time. The problem is that you need one effector molecule to upregulate and one effector molecule to downregulate. And if the guide RNAs will bind both proteins like cross reactivity, there'll be a lot of confusion inside the cells. So we need sort of need to, to split these two systems so that they don't cross react. So for that, we, we developed a different CRISPR system from uh, uh, Staphylococcus aureus. The guide RNAs for this system do not cross react with those of uh, Streptococcus pyogenes. So that means that we can bring these two systems in, we can dedicate one CRISPR system for CRISPR activation and another CRISPR system for CRISPR interference and design the, the, the guide RNAs. Then we can bring all these components into cells at the same time using electroporation. And then the guide RNAs will go in and upregulate one gene. And for the other system, they will go in and downregulate a different gene. And actually in unpublished work, we've also done this with two genes. So, so upregulating two genes while downregulating two other genes. So we're, we're actually starting to, to, to see how complex this can get. And we're also, in fact, trying to do gene editing at the same time. So making insertion and deletions at, at another locus while up and down regulating uh, two other genes. And the hypothesis or the thinking behind all of this is, of course, that in order to, to really implement these systems and go in and completely rewire these cells, I think we would need to do a lot of things simultaneously. Usually it's not enough just to take a single transcription factor or other molecules and just upregulate them or downregulate them. And sometimes you could also definitely think of doing different applications at once. This could be upregulating different cytokines while you repress genes that are involved in exhaustion or something entirely else. So that was really the thinking around this. And also if we want to rewire cells, some pathways will need to be turned up and some pathways will need to be repressed. That's how biology works. So, so the ability to do this simultaneously is, uh, I, I think, it has some pretty cool applications. Yeah, definitely. And and I think in terms of just T cell engineering, I work with putting in sort of one like receptor, right, one car. <laughs> but then, of course, if we could then also do like remove certain inhibitory receptors, as you say, or as you actually show in the paper, put in a, a marker that you can select the the cells that have been uh, sort of modified. I think it opens up for so many different applications just from the sort of very, this will make our life easier to this will make us understand the biology to this will actually have a clinical impact. So I think I think that's a hugely important work that you're doing, Osmos. One thing that you sort of address throughout the paper is sort of the kinetics of the inhibition or the activation. So basically how long a modification lasts for. Can you elaborate a bit about how you expect the activation or how long the inactivation is is expected to last? Yeah, absolutely. We've looked a little bit into this, uh, not for a whole lot of genes, but of course the impact and the duration of these will, will depend on the, the delivery modality. If you're delivering something that is encoded on DNA, of course the DNA needs to be transcribed and it needs to be translated and the proteins that are produced need to go into the nucleus and they need to act on that gene and that gene will need to be expressed before you can see the effect. What we were a little bit surprised to see that when we used our mRNA system, because mRNA acts faster, 
since that immediately after electroporation, it, it can be translated. But what we were quite surprised seeing is that already after three hours, we could start seeing upregulation of genes that weren't, so at baseline, they were not expressed at all. And after three hours, we could see that they, they were starting to get expressed. And after six to 12 hours, they would be fully turned on in all the cells. So this is a very fast acting machinery um, also because of the mRNA delivery that we do. For the CRISPR interference, it takes a little longer. And that makes sense because if we're downregulating a gene that's already expressed, of course, that protein needs to be degraded. The mRNA that has already been made before we, we downregulate it can still be translated and produce protein that would also need to be degraded and the mRNA would need to be degraded. So we need to wait a little while until this fades out. And then we can see the effect of our CRISPR interference. And that, of course, depends on the gene, the, the, the stability of these components. Uh, but what we've seen is that it starts downregulating after a few days and, and typically after three to five days, we get the full repression. And for some target genes, we've seen that the gene is fully turned off in 95% of the cells. So it can be very, uh, very potent depending on the gene and, and the cell type, of course. But the, the kinetics, of course, has to do with the specific gene and has to do with a specific cell type. How fast are they proliferating? And, and you know, the protosomal degradation of proteins, how, how active in that, is that in a specific cell type? The CRISPR activation lasts for a few days, I would say three to four days typically. Then the mRNA that we have delivered is degraded. The protein has also been degraded and the, and the effect starts to wear off. So, so uh, within a week, the CRISPR activation is, is completely shut off again. So I'd like to zoom out and um, and talk about some big picture ideas and, and challenges, I guess. So first off, in, to your mind, what are the perspectives of using CRISPR to sort of treat human diseases and, and what's sort of the low-hanging fruits here? Where should we try and use CRISPR? Yeah, that's, well, for, to just answer very briefly, it has enormous potential, obviously, and, and people have realized this from the beginning. What people have done mainly is to sort of copy-paste what has been done in, in the early gene therapy endeavors, going for rare monogenic diseases that are very severe. Um, and that's why we've seen the first therapy uh, now being approved for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. So the low-hanging fruit is definitely these monogenic diseases where you have a high therapeutic need. And then of course, also in, in, in cancer, where there's also a, a high therapeutic need, we've seen the CRISPR system being applied to cellular therapies, mainly CAR T cells, where it's also really revolutionized the way I think the whole field looks at T cell therapies and the possibilities that the CRISPR system has provided now, doing different kinds of modification to enhance T cells, but also the transition from autologous into allogeneic products which is also mainly facilitated by, by gene editing. So that has been the low-hanging fruit in the field for sure and, and is really being realized now. And I would, I would say probably within the next five years, we'll see all of this come into fruition. And I guess in a lot of those cases, you, you're able to sort of take out a cell, do the modification or the edits, and then put it back in. Do you think, is there a way to sort of deliver the system to cells in the body without sort of taking them out? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, and I think that will be the next breakthrough Hopefully, in the field, we've seen some early studies being able to do that. Uh, we have companies focusing on that as well, also in monogenic disorders and transthyroidine amyloidosis. We've seen great results in, um, in treating this monogenic disease. We've seen recent data on familial hypercholesterolemia also in, in 
doing base editing in vivo. But the problem there is that it's it's mainly liver-based. We have a few tissues that are easy to reach with these components. Liver is one of them. And you can say those are also the low-hanging fruit in vivo delivery of, of, of gene editing components. So I think that next hurdle is to overcome that barrier to get access to other tissues uh, as well. For example, hematopoietic stem cells, because we know that these therapies are going to be uh, horrendously expensive. The price estimate is around $2 million for this new, newly approved um, CRISPR therapy for pediathalassemia and, and sickle cell disease. So we, if we can transition into an in vivo th- setting, that is prone to be much cheaper and you can get access to this therapy and you can, you can apply it more broadly in the world. So, so sort of in, in your lab, are you focused on any one disease or is there like one disease that you really want to try and treat with CRISPR? We, we have a few. We have a center, Pascal Mitt, that is focused on immunodeficiencies, rare immunodeficiencies where we've been using sort of the conventional gene editing system, but we're also now using base and prime editors to correct some of these mutations that these patients carry. The obstacles there are that First of all, these are very rare diseases. So something that we as, as academic or university hospital people will have to see if we can fix because there are no commercial entities that will take this on. The other problem is that these are not only are there very few patients, but the patients there are carry different variants in disease causing variants in their genome. So we sort of have to, we're trying to make universal or semi-universal correction uh, therapies for some of these, but we're also trying to use base editors to make very patient specific components. And of course that, that constitutes a hurdle in itself, making personalized genetic medicine because it takes a long time to, to make these and also do the, the proper safety testing. Uh, and then it, when you've developed all of that and, and, and spend, spend a lot of money, you only have one or two patients that you can treat and then you have to start all over. Yeah, I think that's a very novel cause. And I, I mean, these, especially the severe immunodeficiencies, I mean, they are at very, very high risk in the first couple of years of their life, right? And so I think that's that's great. In terms of cellular therapies, I, I know that a few groups have used CRISPR to sort of insert a T-cell receptor or a CAR, and you, you mentioned that previously as well. Do you think there's a rationale behind trying to sort of combine the methods from your work? Uh, for example, tuning certain genes up and down with sort of CAR or TCR-based therapies? Yeah, absolutely. I think this concept of doing transcriptional engineering has a lot of potential. It's a transient system, meaning that we can impose this different state onto the cells, but then everything will be gone because that's what every, you know, every scientist worry about is that if you start doing genetic edits and doing multiple of them, what will actually be the consequences on the genetic level? I sort of feel like we can do a lot of things without disturbing too much because those components are not going to be there permanently. The effects that we that we make, at least on the protein level, will not be permanent. Of course, there could be downstream. If you completely rewire a cell or reconfigure a cell state, uh, of course, that, that could be permanent. Uh, but that would hopefully be the uh, be the intention of, of these things. So, so I think definitely, I'm not an immunologist. We're not an immunology lab as such, but we're developing these tools. So I think what we'll need there is sort of the immunological background knowledge to go in and do the target identification. And we've already seen that. We've seen so many CRISPR screens being done on CAR T cells, for example, to figure out what kind of genes are involved in different processes. So absolutely. We've also seen that manufacturing is something that's very important in these CAR T cell therapies. People are now trying to to shorten the duration because we know that the T cell product that comes comes out is just worse the longer that you put them in culture. 
So maybe some of these CRISPR-A or CRISPR-I technologies can go in and fix some of these issues, right? Particularly for the allogeneic products where you would just like to make as many cells as possible. But of course, that comes with the potential downside that these cell products could be um, inferior. So being able to go in and sort of tune these cells to their maximal potency. I think that could be really cool. Yeah, and I think you're right. There's a lot of focus now or emphasis in the field about, as you say, there's sort of a trade-off. You want to get a lot of cars. You want to have them expand. You want them to be really good killers. But maybe that, I think maybe it's, that might come with a trade-off in terms of sort of long-term persistence once they're sort of in, in patients, right? And, and just figuring that out, I think systems like what you're using here will be really interesting to sort of test and see whether we can push for certain subsets or cells that work better. So thanks for sharing that. Okay, so I'd like to end sort of on uh, where you see the field ending or sort of moving into. It seems to me you've, you've outlined a ton of different sort of ways that it's sort of a burrowing out. Do you think that will continue or where do you think CRISPR will go next? Yeah, absolutely. There's still so much potential in, in this technology. I think, you know, just a few years back, we had no idea that primatuses would come out, these fancy ways of doing more precise and, and safer edits to the genome. I think we'll see that the tools, the, the, the basic tools being developed uh, further, we'll see them being optimized. We'll see new tools come out that are, you know, in clever ways, re-engineering these things will probably also see more repurposing of CRISPR systems. And then, of course, for therapeutic applications, I think we'll see a lot. And, and we'll, I think also we'll start seeing the field move not out, but I'll be being expanded into other cellular therapies beyond T-cell therapies. This could be for regenerative medicine. We talked about iPSCs and the, and the potential there. I still don't think the full potential of uh, iPSCs has been realized, but you know, as that moves along and we see uh, gene editing being applied in different ways of, of engineering, at least, uh, I think we'll see a, a lot of things come out of that as well. So, you know, in, in the full scope of things, I think this is, uh, we're moving into a, a decade of modern medicine. That would be very, very ex ex exciting where we see living drugs come to full realization. Okay, well, Rasmus, thank you so much. Um, that's it for the Cell Therapy Podcast today. Rasmus, I want to thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. All the, all the articles that we discuss will be linked in the show notes wherever you listen to the show. Uh, remember to subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, bye. Bye.